but um, I have something on my heart that I want to share. It was, it was kind of neat, you know, as soon as I got the invitation to come up here, I knew last night I was supposed to talk about what I was going and wound up talking about. Uh, but uh, for this meeting, I just um, kept my heart open and just waited for something to land, and I agree with the question and answer session. Um, we're going to do that at the end, but uh, this afternoon, I just had a, a title just kind of land in my heart, uh, and uh, the title is The Burden of Leadership. Now, I know that that's a strong word. In fact, I was a little bit hesitant to even name it that because, after all, burden is not necessarily something uh, I'm too big of a fan of in any shape, form. <laughs> Or fashion, uh, but how many of you know burden is a, a actual biblical New Testament word, uh, and that with that we are called by God to bear one another's burdens. Uh, Paul said that there were many things that came on his life, but he ended all of those things with the care of the churches. He says, which comes upon me daily. And when you're in a position of leadership, there is a burden that is attached to that position that will come upon you daily. And I want to help all of us understand what that burden is uh, and then how to bear that burden in the life of leadership uh, so that this transition can be all that God wants it to be and as effective and fruitful as God wants it to be. How many of you know that I believe this church is due for just a supernatural harvest of all the seed that has been sown in this place over the past decades? Just the seeds of prayer, the seeds of giving, all of those things. I believe this is just a harvest time and a harvest year for this ministry. Uh, so we're going to talk about how to step over into those things and any role I can play in helping with that. I'll just be honored to do that. Before I continue or dive into the message, could we just bow our heads for prayer and let's tap into our help. Father, we come before you today. We love you. We honor you. I thank you, Lord, for your amazing Holy Spirit. He is our leader. He is our helper. He is our guide. I, I thank you, Father, for the anointing. I thank you, Father, that you make my tongue the pen of a ready writer that would write the word of God upon the hearts of these your sheep. Let everything that I say make sense and let it fit in their heart like just a supernatural revelation only can. I thank you, Father, that while I'm speaking, your Holy Spirit speaks. That, Father, it wouldn't bother me in the least as if he is talking to their heart about something entirely different than what I may be saying. But, Father, what I do ask is that every single one of us leave here better than when we came leave here equipped to fulfill our call as well as equipped to help this ministry fulfill its. We love you, Lord. We yield to your spirit. We say, let your will be done, and we will say all that we need to say. We love you, Lord. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Let's just lift our hands and bless him for a minute. Father, we bless you. We honor you. We praise you, Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen, amen. I tell you what, I feel the anointing. Amen. You know, you don't have to feel it. But I tell you what, when you do, it's a good thing. Amen. Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 15, the burden of leadership. The burden of leadership is change. That's the burden of leadership. It's change. Matthew chapter 15, and we'll look here in verse 14 in a minute. 
a number of years ago, I was having a conversation with a minister who had pastored a church, but was also in the traveling ministry. He did both at the same time. At the time when I was having this conversation with him, he was in full-time traveling ministry and had turned his church over to another pastor. This other pastor was not related to him in any way, shape, form, or fashion. He just turned it over. And so I was very, very curious to kind of talk to him about that transition. Uh, and uh, also, that transition was not a pleasant transition, I don't think, for any party. Uh, and so anytime something like that happens, I always want to learn from it. How many of you know it's much better to learn from someone else's mistakes than it is to make your own? Yeah. Amen. Uh, and also, with success, success does something quite phenomenal. Success leaves clues. And if you're wise, you'll take the time to find out what those clues are and possibly learn something. So with this, I, I knew that this man was a success in that moment. His traveling ministry is a success today. I knew his church was very successful, but then I also knew this part of his life did not go quite the way he wanted it to go. So I asked him, we were actually in his airplane, and he was flying it, and I was up in the cockpit with him. And so we have on the headsets, you know, all those kinds of things, and he's flying, and I asked him the question, I said, what did you learn from all of that? What did you learn from that transition? And he said four things, and really none of these things have anything to do with what I'm talking about tonight, but they're really good, so I just thought I would share them with you anyway, and then get to the point I was going to make. He said four things. He said, number one, when the Lord deals with your heart to make changes, do not, do not make excuses, make changes. I love that. When the Lord deals with your heart to make changes, do not make excuses, make changes. Now, I think we've all done that in our life, right? Uh, that, um, you know, especially in the era of, of people when we're, we're fighting, well, do we make a change there? And we know in our heart we do need to make a change there, but we keep making excuses as to why we're not. Anytime the Lord is dealing with your heart to make a change, never make an excuse. Always make a change. So he said in his life, he noticed that long before um, something came up in his ministry that kind of hurt it, that kind of harmed it, there were some changes the Lord was dealing with his heart to make. But instead of making those changes, he, make, he made excuses as to why he could not afford to make those changes. And he said it cost him. So he said, that's the first thing I learned is that when the Lord deals with your heart, to make changes, never make an excuse, always make the change. Now, how many of you know on a personal level, that's good advice too? Then maybe in this new year, God's been dealing with your heart to make some changes. How many of you know when the Lord deals with your heart to make a change, never give God an excuse, always make the change? He said, number two, watch out for a lying and critical spirit. It's a sign of a major spiritual problem. Watch out for a lying, or how many of you know exaggeration is just lying's pretty sister? I mean, that's all it is. It's just anytime there's an exaggeration or lying, he said, watch out for that. Watch out for exaggeration. Watch out for lying and watch out for a critical spirit. It's the sign of a major spiritual problem. And his scripture for this is found over in the book of Proverbs where it says there are two things that you are to bind about your neck. Now, what's interesting all throughout scripture, the Bible's telling you to put on stuff. You know, in the New Testament, put on the armor of God, list what that armor is. But with these two things, it says don't put these things on. It says bind them on, meaning these things should never come off. You know what those two things are? Truth and mercy. 
There's two things that should never come out of your life, and that's the truth, and that's mercy. How many of you know what mercy is? Is when you see someone's feet of clay, but you decide to be merciful anyway. It's easy to love someone when they are displaying their glory, but where true character is revealed is when you see someone's weaknesses. In fact, when you see someone's weakness, it's not a test of their character, it's actually a test of yours. The Lord spoke that to me years ago. I was dealing with a situation, and there was an individual who was doing some things that were hurting me, and uh, I took it to the Lord in prayer, and he said, Joel, you're missing the whole point. This is not a test of their character. They're revealing their character to the whole world right now. It's actually a test of yours, and if you pass this test, there will be a reward on the other side. In fact, he went on to tell me, he said, there's a reward that you get from loving your enemies that you can't get any other way. There's a reward that you can get for loving your enemies that you cannot get any other way. In the Old Testament, Noah got drunk. How many of you remember that story? Noah got drunk. We don't know how he got drunk, but he got drunk, drunk. He got so drunk, he wound up naked, and that's drunk, drunk. With this, Noah got drunk. His son saw it, and you you know the story. His son saw it. When his son saw that that his father was drunk, what did he do? He went out and exposed, was very critical of his father's faults, of his father's failures. We live in a society that wants to do that, especially to its leaders, Because leaders are in a place where they're in public view, and so out of that, we hold them to a higher standard, and maybe that's some of it that we should, but we hold them to a higher standard than we even hold to ourselves, and so we naturally, when we see their feet of clay, want to point out those weaknesses. That's exactly what Noah's first son did. When he told it to his other brothers, those were the only people he could really tell it to at that point. Everyone else had kind of been washed away. But when he told it to his other brothers, his brothers heard this. You know what they did? They did something awesome. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them, the Bible says about your neck. They did something very merciful. They took a garment in between them. One held one side, the other one held the other side. And they walked backwards, the Bible said. They didn't want to see the the leader's faults. They didn't want to see the leader's failures. They didn't want to see the mistakes of the father. They, They held a garment backwards. And almost kind of waited till their feet kind of bumped up against Noah's feet. And when they, their feet bumped up against Noah's feet, they laid the garment down and covered up their father's nakedness. It covered up that sin. It covered up that mistake. You could say it this way. It made an allowance for that weakness. It was merciful. You know what happened? When the story comes to its conclusion, it is not Noah who walks away with a curse on his life. Why? Because when I see someone else's faults, it's not a test of their character. It's actually a test of whose? It's a test of my character. My response to their sin is actually the true test. And if you can get that, friend, it'll change your life. With this, the first guy, the first son, who saw the mistake of his father and made a second mistake, he allowed his sin to make his, him sin. But where Noah's was a sin of the flesh, the son's was a sin of the heart. And with this, this son walked around for the rest of his life with a curse upon him where the two other brothers who covered up that nakedness and were merciful in that moment actually walked away with a greater blessing on their life. Why? They passed the test. Whenever you see someone, especially in leadership, when you see their feet of clay and you are tempted to be critical, always remember that story. Which son do I want to be? Because it's actually not the leader or anyone else who's facing a test of their character. It's actually me facing one right now. Can I get an amen? So with this, he said, watch out for someone who's critical. 
Watch out for someone who's, who's lying or exaggerating. It's the sign of a major, you've got a major spiritual problem there. Because mercy and truth are to be bound about or next. Point number three, he said this, the third thing he learned. If the enemy cannot get to you, he will try to get to you by those closest to you. If the enemy cannot get to you, he will try to get to you through someone closest to you. The example he gave with this was Jesus. He couldn't get Jesus to sin, so he tried to get a whole bunch of people to sin against Jesus to get the seed of offense in Jesus' heart. If he can't get you to sin... If he can't get you to make a mistake, what he'll try to do is to get to, to you through someone close to you. He'll, he'll try to infiltrate through the life of someone else, be it a Judas, be it a Peter. On the way to the cross, Jesus suffered a lot of physical pain, but that does not compare to the amount of the relational pain. How many of you know in life that the things that hurt us the most are often not the physical pains we face, it's the relational pain we go through, the betrayals, the jealousies, the bitterness, the fault-finding, the, the, the lying, the cheating, all of those types of things. Those things actually cut us deeper than any other thing, and that's where the problem lies because that can turn into a root of bitterness that defiles and poisons our life. How many of you know a snake can hurt you? If, you? if you've ever been bitten by a snake, the bite can hurt you, but how many of you know the bite is not the dangerous thing? You can be bit by a snake and the pain can hurt, but that's not the dangerous thing. What's the dangerous thing? It's the venom coming from the bite. See, you can be bit by a snake and you can go on living. You can be bitten by a snake and be fine so long as that snake is not poisonous. But if that snake is poisonous, it will deliver the venom into your system. And unless you get that venom out, that's the true danger. Not the physical pain that happened at the site of the bite, but the spiritual pain that's actually surging through your body. That's the thing that's dangerous. And when someone hurts you, yes, the initial hurt hurts, but that's not the true thing that's after your life. And that's not the ultimate thing that can hurt you the most. It's not the attack from the person that hurts you the most. It's the venom of unforgiveness that can surge throughout your life and stay there for years without it being dealt with. And you think it's still the bite hurting you. And in all actuality, it's the venom of unforgiveness surging through your heart. Amen. You've got to deal with that. The bite hurts, but it's the venom that'll kill you. You've got to deal with that. And so he said you've got to be mindful of this, that in his life when he saw things go, go just a, a little bit negative for him, it wasn't just that people kind of rose up against him. He said in his own life he noticed that while the devil couldn't get him to make him sin, when these people came around him and did these things to him, it actually sowed a little bit of unforgiveness in his heart. And he said it began to change him. He began to be more critical. He began to be more hard. He began to be a loner. He began to close himself off from other people, which is always dangerous. People say, well, all I need is God. Have you ever heard people say, all I need is God? Well, apparently not, because in the book of Genesis, God said, all you have is me, and this is not good. You need some help. It is not good for a man to be alone. You need some people around you. Jesus had God, but he said, you know what? Before I try to do anything else, I need to get some people around around me. Saul was a loner. It cost him. Samson was a loner. It cost him. David had mighty men. And because of that, he walked in greatness. Friend, I'm telling you, we all need people. And the enemy wants to close us all from people because we've got hurt from people on the outside. And with that, it hurts us because of that root of unforgiveness. Amen. So if the enemy can't get to you, you got to be careful because he'll try to get to people who are close to you. Number four, he said this, number four. Faithfulness, I love this. 
Faithfulness cannot be demonstrated in good times. It's revealed only in adversity. Faithfulness cannot be demonstrated in good times. It can only be revealed in adversity. People say, well, we're faithful. You are now. When everything is good, it's easy to be faithful. But faithfulness cannot be revealed until adversity hits. And when adversity hits, that's the only time faithfulness can be demonstrated. In your life, you know who you are faithful to. When adversity hits, how close you stand next to them. That's the sign of true and genuine faithfulness. So he's communicating these things, and like the whole time he's communicating, I've got my phone out and I'm typing these things, because like every word he's saying, I'm like, this is so good. I've got like 18 messages out of this already. Please just keep going. And then I asked the following question. I said, well, why did you turn it over? Especially the way you turned it over. Why did you turn it over? He said something to me I never will forget. He said, Joel, I simply ran out of vision for it. I ran out of vision for it. I just, I just ran out of vision for it. And as soon as he said it, I said, well, that just makes sense. That makes sense. Because the Bible says, where there is no vision, what happens? People and things, life begins perish. What is vision? I've got, got this in my notes. I've got a, a lot of little one-liners. Uh, they gave me these little journals in my little gift basket. That was the, the bomb gift basket as well. I mean, had like all my favorite journals and almonds and all these gift cards. I mean, it was amazing. So whoever did that, you're, you're awesome. But with this, uh, like I said, I didn't have a message for the service when I came here. So I just like took out this and just started writing and I've got a lot of notes. So just be ready for the Rest of the night. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We'll get you out of here fast. But with this, here's, here's vision. Sight, number one, sight captures the present, but vision captures the future. Sight is a function of the eyes. It captures the present, but vision captures the future. And this is important when it comes to the burden of leadership. I am going somewhere with this. Sight captures the present, but vision captures the future. When you're a visionary, it simply means your current dreams are more important to you than your past memories. Sight sees what is, vision sees what could be. Number two, sight deals, that's actually number two, sight deals with what is, but vision embraces what could be. Sight is a function of the eyes. It deals with what is. Vision is a function of the heart. It embraces what could be. Sight deals with what is. Vision embraces what could be. Number three, vision, I love this one. Vision is a clear picture of what could be fueled by the conviction that it should be. Vision is a clear picture of what could be fueled by the conviction that it should be. Example of this is Nehemiah. You remember Nehemiah? He hears that the walls around his city, Jerusalem, have been torn down. And all of a sudden, a conviction arises in his heart that life should not be that way. And a vision comes into his soul where he sees himself rebuilding those walls. That's the nature of a visionary. 
a visionary, has a clear picture of what could be, and it is fueled by a conviction that it must be, it should be in the earth. This is the definition of a leader. A leader is always driven by vision. Now, Jesus very seldom ever used the word leader, but there was one time he did, and it's found in the book of Matthew, chapter 15 and verse 14. Let's look at it here, Matthew 15 and verse 14. He said, let them alone. He's talking about the Pharisees. He says, they be, now you can, I've got this underlined and in parentheses, they are blind leaders, blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into, notice this, not a ditch, the ditch. He's talking about a particular ditch. It's all the same ditch. It's not a ditch. It's the ditch. Everyone say the ditch. He said, leave them alone. They are blind leaders. Blind leaders. And he said, if the blind lead the blind, they're going to put everyone into the ditch. How many of you know if you're in the ditch, it means there's no movement. There's no progress up. There's no progress back. There's no progress to the side. There's no progress down. The ditch is the place where you are stuck. It's just like there's no progress going in any type of way. And he said the way that they got in there is they lost vision. When he says blind leaders, he's not talking about all these Pharisees can't see with sight. He's talking about all these Pharisees can't see with their heart. Vision is a function of the heart. Sight is a function of the eyes. And he says, as long as these leaders can't see with their heart, they're going to lead everyone over into the ditch. And he said, the only remedy for getting out of the ditch is someone has to recover vision. The definition of a leader is someone who has vision, who is going to move something from where it is to where it needs to be. He or she sees that place, and not only do they see that place, there's a conviction that it must be that way. They see it, they notice it, and they say, we're going to move all of this from where it is now to where it needs to be. They are motivated that it must be this way in the earth. There's something that just comes over that leader that says, whatever it takes to get from point A to point B, this is where we are going, and I am going to get there. And what this guy was telling me is, I couldn't see that place anymore. I I just couldn't see where we needed to go. I couldn't see where we needed to be. I I couldn't see what steps we needed to take. I I just, I couldn't dream again. And this is one of the things, just a little time out. This is the one of the things that God wants to do in all, that the, the enemy, I'm sorry, wants to do in all of our lives is to bring so many obstacles in our way that we are simply trying to maintain the present versus working to create a better future. When I was struggling pastoring, one of the things the Lord spoke to my heart so clearly, he said, stop thinking survival and start thinking increase. I never forgot that. See, all the while I'm asking, Father, Father, what can we do to just just keep people from leaving the church? We got to stop people from leaving the church. We got to stop these people from leaving the church. God, please just let me have one week where I'm told no one left the church. That was the bulk of my prayer life. And finally, the Lord spoke to my heart and said, stop. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So let me ask you this. If all I'm thinking about today is today, what is tomorrow destined to look like? Okay, I'll go this real slow. The Bible says, as a man thinketh 
in his heart, so is he. So if all I think about today is today, what is tomorrow destined to look like today? The best my ever tomorrows will be is just like my today's unless I get vision. And in your life, especially this year, my friend, I want to encourage you, get some big, bold vision for what God can do in your life. Because how many of you know, if you can just think it, God can do exceedingly, abundantly, above anything you could ask or even think. But he's got to find some people who will have vision. Vision is the target for faith. Faith cannot operate where there is no vision. And so the essence of leadership is a leader is compelled by a vision. He or she sees, we've got to get from here to there. Now, all of you should be a leader of nothing else, at least of yourself. In fact, that's the first thing we all have to learn to lead. We have to learn to lead ourselves. But in our lives, God will promote people to a position of leadership. And when these people are promoted to a position of leadership, the challenge is not only getting themselves to that place, but also moving the congregation or moving the business or moving the employees in that direction too. They will see that place. And so when they see that place, something arises in their heart. You know what arises in their heart? The burden of leadership. They know things have to change. Because the essence of point A, going from point A to point B, is we are moving. And if you are moving from this place to this place, by definition, something had to change. You had to move from where you were to where you are now. Any of you ever moved houses before? Any of you ever changed houses? You ever packed up all that stuff in your house? Put it all in boxes? Moved it across town and got into a new house or a new apartment? What did you find out about that new place? It's completely different than the old. Everything changed. Now, was that a fun process? No, I moved one time. I told my wife, I think this is it. I don't know if I'll ever do this again. I realized how much stuff we had in that moment. It can be a tiring process, right? Now, imagine doing that every day of your life. That's the price of leadership. If you're not willing to do that, you're disqualified from leadership. Because the essence of leadership is we are constantly going from where we are to where we need to be. And a leader is fueled by that conviction and that vision that we have to get from here to here. Because as soon as a leader loses that, it is inevitable decline will always hit every single time. Because where there is no vision, everything will perish where there is no Vision. Vision has to be at the forefront of our life. It has to be at the forefront of our nation. It has to be at the forefront. This is why the upcoming election matters so much. Is who has the greatest vision of what America could be and do they have the conviction that it should be? There's some people who have a conviction of what America should be that is far great, far lesser than what our founding fathers originally intended and what God has intended for this nation. But the essence of leadership is all those people who are running for presidential office, what do they want to do? They want to move the nation from here to where they think it should be. Why? That's the essence of leadership. Where that element is missing, there is no leadership. And a leader's job responsibility is to take everything that is underneath its care and to move it over into a place of greener pastures. 
It's the essence of Psalms 23. The shepherd is leading us into green pastures. That means the sheep and the shepherd must move from where they are to where they need to be. The leader has to see that place and to get everyone moving in that direction. Does that make sense? And the issue with that is, is no one likes change. And this is why, ladies and gentlemen, there is so little greatness in our world. Because there is no greatness where there is no one getting uncomfortable. I was telling them this at, at the, first, the first night we had dinner. I, I've, I've been undergoing a, a physical change in my own life. And I have felt the, the need to, to get in better shape and those types of things. And so I had a trainer come up to me at the end of a service. This big guy used to play it in the NFL. And he's got all these muscles just bulging from places that muscles should never be. And... <laughs> All of these types of things, he comes down to me after preaching one Wednesday night, he comes up to me and he shakes me, grabs me by my arms and shakes me and says, you've been training me spiritually, I want to train you naturally. And I'm like, I'll let you train me in anything if you just stop shaking me, my friend. I'm like, where is security? Security, where are you in this moment? So I agree to go out there, and I tell you what, it's like one of those boot camp types of things. It's like CrossFit on steroids. You know, you're, you're flipping tires, and you're, you're competing in, in 100-yard dashes with parachutes strapped onto your back, and all of these crazy things that are just torturous. And I, I told the guy, I said, you know, I, I feel like every morning when I come out here, I'm going to just lose everything that I put in my system over the last 24 hours. And he said, Joel, you will never grow until you get uncomfortable. Do you know that's the truth? Physically, you'll never grow until you get uncomfortable. Spiritually, if you want to grow, you need a new pattern. That new pattern, you know what it'll do? Fasting makes you uncomfortable. Giving, how many of you know it never stops? You get to 10%, you think it'd stop there, and it doesn't. It keeps going. Why? Sacrifice. What's the essence of sacrifice? You get uncomfortable. And God is always trying to take you and me out of our comfort zone. Why? Because as long as I'm comfortable, this is as good as it's getting. The only way to get to the next level is at some point in my life, I have to get uncomfortable i got to shake myself and say, you know what? If I want a better result, i got to do something different. If I want a different product, I need a different pattern because my pattern is determining my product. And friend, I'm telling you, whenever that comes in any of our lives, physically, spiritually, relationally, you know what it makes us? It makes us uncomfortable and our flesh recoils because the one thing our flesh does not like to get is uncomfortable. It likes its comfort. It likes the lazy boy. It likes the bag of chips. It like, come on, somebody. It, it, likes, the, it likes the pies and the cakes. It, it likes what it's gotten used to. And in all of our lives, we've gotten used to things. We've gotten used to things physically. We've gotten used to things spiritually. We've gotten used to things relationally. We've gotten used to things mentally. And, and God comes and says, but this is not as good as it gets. You can have something more than what you're seeing right now. But the reason why people so few ever get to that level is no one wants to get uncomfortable. No one wants to change. But that's the essence of all greatness is someone shook themselves up enough and stayed shook up until they got from where they were until where God wanted them to be. And so a leader has the awesome job of coming in and making a whole bunch of people uncomfortable. 
Because he knows we can be here. And she knows we can be here. But the only way to get here is to shake some things up and to move from where we are to where we need to be. Does that make sense? It's the burden of leadership. I'll give you a couple of quotes, a couple of quotes, okay? Can you, you ready to write some things down? Give a couple of quotes. A leader is always asking himself the following question. What's next? There's always got to be a next. There's a pastor, he pastors a big church. It's called Church on the Move. And uh, he was t- telling people why he called his church Church on the Move. And he said, the reason why we call our church Church on the Move is that the Lord dealt with me years ago to always underbuild and he said, you would think, you know, if you're building something, you'd want to make it as big as you possibly could. And he said, no, the Lord dealt with him specifically. Never build it as big as you can build it. Always underbuild. Because he said, as soon as the people get into a place and they think this is as good as it gets, they will rest on the past instead of trying to create a future. And he said, what you meant to be a sanctuary will become your graveyard. Why? It took all the vision out of them. This is as good as it gets. This is awesome. This is great. He said, no, the Lord dealt with him. Build small enough so that as soon as you get in that place, people are wondering, what are we going to do next? And he said, if they can say, what are we going to do next? Guess what they're seeing? The future. They're seeing what could be. They have vision. And wherever vision is, things can continue to grow. Wherever vision is missing, things will be as good as they get. And then eventually decline. A leader has to be able to answer that question, what's next? In your life, you should always be able to ask that question. Okay, great. I thank God for what he's done in the past. What's next? Number two, number two. Leaders are never comfortable. In fact, that's the price tag of leadership. It's to be uncomfortable. Leaders are never comfortable. That's the price tag of leadership. In fact, a leader will make things uncomfortable. There's something in their heart that says, we are not staying here. This is good, but we're not staying here. Amen. I've got all, today, literally today, I'm just sitting down with a pen and paper. I'm like, let's write some stuff down. I had the Lord deal with my heart about these things. Number two, you cannot be a leader until your future is more important than your present. You cannot be a leader until your future is more important than your present. You can't lead yourself until your future is more important than your present. Why? Because until your future is more important than your present, you won't make the changes you need to improve your present. You know the biggest issue in my life is? You know what the biggest issue is in my life right now professionally? I'm incredibly comfortable. You know what I found over the past two years? I don't dream near as big as I used to. You know why? Life is good. Building is debt-free. Church is growing. We're seeing a lot of neat things. It's good. I enjoy it. And I'm telling you, friend, it's dangerous. Because as soon as you rest on this is really good and there's not something in you that says, yeah, but it can be better. And there's not that sight that makes you willing to pay the price to make it that way. Life will never stay on its current level. There is only increase or decrease. There is never staying the same. Leadership begins and ends with vision. When your vision runs out, so does your leadership. Leadership begins 
a leader's life begins with vision. It begins with, we got to do this. We have to establish this. We have to make it this way. That's when a leader's life starts. It starts with vision, but it also ends with vision. When your vision runs out, so does your leadership. A leader, well, I'll give you time. Just if I'm going too fast, just say, stop, stop. Throw something at me. Gently. But <laughs> A leader lives in the future and visits the present. A leader lives in the, vis- in the future and visits the present. The future and what could be is more important than what is. The future and what it could be is more important than what is. And that's precisely why they're willing to change it. Does that make sense? What you can be in the future is more important than what you are now. And that's precisely why you're willing to pay the price to change who you are. I'll give you the next. I'll just run through these. We could talk about each one, but I want to make a point and then have time for question and answers. Leadership must be tied to vision in order to be successful. Leadership must be tied to vision in order to be successful. It's my job as a leader to sell my vision of a preferred future to myself and everyone else. It's my job as a leader to sell my vision of a preferred future to myself and to everyone else. Jesse Duplantis said, if my past memories are bigger than my present dreams, my life is in trouble. I always love that. If my past memories are bigger than my present dreams, my life is in trouble. Jesse, you know, obviously, Duplantis travels around a lot of different churches, so he's seen a lot, and he does a conference every year around April called the Supernatural Visionary Leadership Conference, something along those lines. I probably just butchered his conference. But with that, something along that lines, and that's where he said that quote. He said, I've gone into churches, and I can always tell the ones that are thriving are because their future dreams are bigger than their past memories. Come on. And he said, any church that I come into, and it's a shell of what it once was, he said, it's always because people have turned into museum keepers instead of pioneers they once were. They're trying to maintain what was instead of creating what could be. Leaders don't always know how, but they see where they are going. They don't always know how they'll get there, but they know they'll get there. They see it. Leaders don't take walks. They take journeys. They're always walking somewhere. We had such an example of this in Dr. Dufresne. There was always, what's next? What's, you get one thing done, it's like, we're going to build a new building. What's next? We're going to build, the, I mean, it was always something. 
Always something. Why? Visionary. It's the price tag of leadership. It's the price tag of leadership. There is no leadership until you're willing to get you and everyone else uncomfortable. It's the price tag of leadership. And so with that, a leader deals with that pressure of knowing it has to change, of knowing that in order to get from point A to point B, we have to move. Now, you have faced that pressure, and all of us have, in our own lives of of waking up on New Year's Eve or waking up on New Year's Day and knowing, I need to be here, so we'll set these New Year's goals and resolutions and all of those types of things. And whenever you're writing that, there's almost a disturbance that is coming over your system because if you do it right, you know that it's not just something you're writing down that you want to achieve, but you know with that achievement comes a brand new discipline. And this is why, you know, the great scripture in Hebrews where it's talking about for the joy that was set before him. Jesus endured this cross, despised the shame. Jesus had vision. His future was more important than his present. And that's why he was willing to pay the price of the cross because he could see the other side. He could see us sitting here in New Albany. And he could see believers worshiping all over the world, accepting the Jesus and coming into relationship with the Father, God. He could see it. And so because he could see it, he was willing to be uncomfortable. He could see it. And you know what he talks about right after that? Discipline. Discipline. He goes into the, the discourse of whom the Lord loves, the Lord disciplines. And he said, look, whenever you're disciplining or whenever you're making changes, that's what discipline is. He said, it's never fun. He said, no one does this and says, this is awesome. That's the Joel Sims paraphrase. I was writing my own, you know. He says, no one does that. He said, there's no discipline that in the moment seems like it's fun. But he says, if you're willing to endure it, On the other side of it, in fact, he uses the word afterward, there's a weight of glory. So he said, be like Jesus who can see the future and is willing to pay the price in the present to get there. Then he says, don't be like someone. You know he picks? Esau. What did Esau do? In a moment of time, he allowed the comfort of the present to allow him to sell his birthright of what he could be. And for the rest of his life, he lived with the pain of regret Because he sold his future for what he wanted right then. And the Bible says he sought to get it back with many tears but was never able to get there because he traded comfort in the present for success in the future. Said Jesus was willing to trade the comfort of the present and make it uncomfortable so that he could get to where he wanted to go knowing that where he wanted to go was better than where he was today. Esau never made that change. And because of that, Esau's life was far less than it should be. Why? Esau does what many people did. Refused to get uncomfortable. You have to fight to stay uncomfortable as a leader. And that is why leadership can be so taxing. Because it's not just you making yourself uncomfortable. It's having to get everyone else to see the need to get uncomfortable. That can so tax the heart of a leader. And with this this transition that you guys are are undertaking, and and with this, uh, you know, I I was telling them, I I had a a word for this year, just a a word for this year. Every every turn of a new year, I kind of ask God, you know, what's the word for the year? And and, uh, I hadn't gotten any answer. Uh, And a couple of weeks ago, I was having lunch with another minister. 
And he told me the following. He said, you know, I've been meditating on this scripture where it says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And he said, as I was meditating on that, the Lord spoke to my heart and said, you know, a step can be a step out. But a step can also be a step up where you step on a step and it takes you up. He said, you can take that step out, but you could also take a natural step like over there. There's steps and take a step up. And when he said that, the Lord spoke to my heart and said, that's what 2016 is. For those people who will be willing to step out, they will also step up. If they will step out, they will step up. You know what I've seen in Scripture and in the lives of the people I pastor as well as myself and those that I know? The greatest sins are not the sins of commission. Sins of commission is, I know I shouldn't do that, but I'm kind of doing it anyway. That's the sin of commission. I know I shouldn't, but I am. That's the sin of commission. Sin of omission, though, is where you know to do something, but you allow fear and insecurity, doubt and unbelief, not just in God, but also in you that allows you to stay in the boat when you know you should be stepping out. And you know what I found? For people, that robs them far more of God's destiny than any sin of commission ever has. The only way to step up is to step out. And if you're willing to take that step out, I believe God will cause you to step up. I believe that's what's happened this year for, for this ministry. Dr. Jacob stepping out. That's a big step. It's a big step. But how many of you know as he stepped out, how many of you believe he's going to step up to things he has never seen before? Increase in favor, and he's already talking to him. You can see the grace of God is all over that move. He stepped out, and he's stepping up. Is it comfortable? No, it never is, but that's the price tag of leadership. For Pastor Jordan, it's the same thing, stepping out. He's stepping out. How many of you believe that as he steps out, this whole place is going to take a step up? And for you too, I feel that in my heart, even for you. If God's been dealing with you to step out, man, don't allow fear to keep you in a box. You've got to rock that box. Step out in what God has for you. If you step out, you'll step up. So with that, a leader sees that need to do that. And that already creates a self-pressure, I know, from leadership. It already creates a self-pressure that makes you not want to make any changes because you love people so much you don't want to disappoint them. You don't want to grieve them. You don't want to wound them. You definitely don't want to fail, but it's far beyond failure. You don't want people looking at you and seeing you in light of insufficiency, and especially in light of someone else. And there's that fear that dogs every leader, that if I step out and I make this change, then I will lose maybe not the followership of people, but also the the honor of people or the, the respect of people or the support of people. And so with that, a leader is always fighting that dilemma. Because on one hand, in his or her heart, they know we have to step out in order to make this change, in order to get from point A to point B. But then there's this thing pulling on them over here that says, I know, but what if you fell? That's an internal stress. But then there's another burden that comes, what if I let them down? What if they disagree with the decision? What if they think we're getting too far this or too much of that? Or what if they compare me to this? Comparison always leads to sin. Like always, always. Comparison always leads to sin. There is no win in comparison. And a leader thinks 
What if I let him down? How do I know? I've been there. My word, I've been there. Oh, it was no fun. I just made a change in our church. It was something that was significant in our church. And I wrestled with that thing for months, sweated during prayer. No great drops of blood or anything, but friend, I'm telling you, just that stress. And it wasn't the stress of if I thought the move would make us more successful. I knew it would. I knew it would equal more rest for me, more rest for the staff, would enable and free me up to do things like I'm doing now because I'd have less on my schedule. But the whole thing that tripped me up the whole time was what will they think of me? If I make this change, what are they going to think about me? I don't want to displease them. I don't want to hurt them. I don't want to hurt anyone. And there's that pressure that makes you want to keep things just the way they are, not rock the boat, but it is the most dangerous thing in all the world because there is no such thing as staying the same. It's the burden of leadership. And if you've ever been in leadership, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And so with this, the greatest thing that any core leaders can do in this church for the leaders of this church is to bear that burden. And to say, pastors, I get it. And I don't know exactly how we're going to get from point A to point B, but I see it too. And when you talk, I see it too. And I don't know exactly what that looks like or how we're going to get there. But where you go, I'm going to go. And when you voice it, I'm going to voice it. And if you're behind it, I'm going to get behind it. And if you say it'll work, I'm going to believe in you and I'm going to say it'll work. And if I see weaknesses or I see feet of clay or I see things not work, I'm not going to be like Noah's first son who goes and tells it to other people. I'm going to be like the last two who come and cover up that weaknesses. Because, friend, I'm telling you, for the heart of every leader who is a divine leader and someone who is walking with God, at their heart, what they want most is what's best for the sheep. And if they think at any moment they're not doing something that is a blessing, not only to the future sheep they will have, but especially to the current sheep they, sheep they have, it, bless, it, it breaks their heart. Nothing has broken my heart more than thinking I may have disappointed someone who is in that place. And that's such a wrong place to be because, friends, you will never please everyone. If I cut the music up, I've got 15 people telling me it's too loud. If I cut it down, I've got 15 telling me it's too low. If the lights are all the way up, I've got people telling me I should dim them. If I dim them, I've got people telling me I should raise them. If the screens are contemporary, I've got people telling me it's too contemporary. If it's not contemporary enough, I've got people telling me it's not contemporary enough. You'll never please everyone. And that's why God has never called you to please people. He's called you to please Him and love people. And there's a big difference. But in all of our hearts, it's a lot easier said than it is done. And so how we help the burden of leadership is coming and saying, we are yours. If you want to go that way, let's go. Let's do it. You say you thirst. We'll fight through the other, other side of all these Philistines and get to that well. You say you need it? Tell us how much you need. Because we see it too. And friends, I'm telling you when you have that, oh man, life gets, as a leader, life gets so much easier. 
when I took over my church, a lot of people leave. You guys know that. I've told you that. A lot of people leave. And um, what's been fascinating over the last three years is probably 85% of those people have come back, including one of the pastors who started a church out of my church. We have lunch regularly. It's a beautiful thing. But you know their biggest regret? They've come weeping, and I weep, weep with them. And I told them, I said, I get it. I guy's 19. I get it. There's, there's nothing you have to repent for. I get it. I was 19. But did you know even with age, it's better to be spirit-led than it is to be battle-tested? That you can go through great battles, but sometimes the very battles you win can be the very thing that's tripping you up because you're trying to fight that battle the same way you won the last one. There's anything that King David showed us is, yes, you can be battle-tested, but sometimes it is far, well, all the time, it's far greater to be spirit-led than it is to be battle-tested because sometimes you shouldn't go up the same way you went up the last time. you got to come around the side. And if you're fighting in light of your past battles instead of the witness you have in your spirit, you will lead you and everyone else into failure. So age has nothing to do with leadership so long as leadership is submitted to the Spirit of God. But with that, in, in, when they come back to the church, it's amazing to see. One, it's amazing to see how graced they are to come back. And it's just a, a beautiful, beautiful thing. But they come back with, I wish, I wish, I wish I would have stayed. And friends, I want, to, I want to encourage you that as this transition is being made and as things change, I don't know what things will change, but don't we know that if things are going to, to happen, things change, things change over time. And I don't know what those things are. I don't know what will change, what won't change, what will stay the same, but I do know the essence of leadership is change. And when those changes are coming across the pulpit, whatever they may be, the essence of the people who are supporting the leader is saying we are going to bear one another's burdens and we are not going to withhold our love and support until those changes are being made or until we see they're successful. You have our support. Does that make sense? I mean, I'll tell you a story and then I'll open up for questions. 7.55, look at that, look at that. He said 55 minutes. Tell you a story. I'll go over. I have a mentor in my life. His name is Charlie Daniels, not the singer. He's a builder. And uh, Charlie's just a man who's spirit-filled and really a father figure to me in my life. He built our current church. He'll build our next one. And just a, a guy who's in tune to the Spirit of God. Don't you love people who are just in tune to the Spirit of God? And we have just communed so much over the things of God and prayer and all those types of things. And one day he told me a story. And in the story, it was about how his business got started. He constructs churches. And how it got started was there was a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that got hit by a tornado, just got torn down. And they needed to be rebuilt, had all the insurance money to rebuild it. And so they hired him out of all the people they could hire. He got a random phone call. It's just one of those divine connections. And he went over there and started constructing the church. 
and got the job and all those things. And the whole time the church was being constructed, they were having church in another facility, and something happened within that church. The grace of God hit it, and it started exploding. I mean, just exploding. The, the church growth was through the roof, and it was nothing anyone could explain other than the goodness of God. They get finally over into the new facility, but when they get into the new facility, they see they have far more people even for that space. So they're having a new meeting to talk about building a new sanctuary. But he said every time they would get talking about that meeting, he said the pastor would just kind of shut it down and kind of go in a different direction. And he said he just kept praying for the pastor and praying for the pastor, not because he needed work, but just kind of felt like that was something that needed to happen. That church needed to change and it needed to build a new facility to make that move which requires stepping out. And once again, stepping out is never fun because what does it make you? It makes you uncomfortable. And so one day he was praying, and Charlie functions this way, very prophetic in many different ways. He sees things. And he was praying, and he saw the pastor walk out of the existing sanctuary, open like a door on the side, and the door on the side went out to where they would build the new sanctuary. It would be like an addition to their current facility. And he said, as soon as he saw the pastor walk out of the door, it gives me goosebumps every time I talk about it. He said, as soon as the pastor walked out of the door, he saw all the angels of heaven standing at attention. And as soon as that pastor crossed the threshold from the door of the old sanctuary onto the land of the new, every angel stood at attention and began beating their shields, ready to go to war ready to make this thing happen, ready to work with that step. How many of you know God is always working with steps? Just ask the lepers. He's always waiting to work with steps. And they stood there just banging on their shields, waiting to step out. He said the pastor would walk out praying, would look around and almost could feel it, but he never saw it. He saw the pastor hang his head down and walk back in. And every angel, is like the breath went out of their lungs. He said he saw that pastor do that multiple times. And every time he did it, all the angels would always do the same thing. He said he didn't know what to do other than just tell the pastor that. And he told the pastor that. And in the meeting, there was a board member who spoke up and said, Pastor, tell him what the Lord showed you. It was the exact same thing. And with this, I asked Charlie, this, this guy, I said, whatever happened with that? What, whatever happened with that, that pastor? Whatever happened with that church? And what changes were ever made there? Don't worry about that. That happens to me all the time. Like, all the time. I'm terrible. I'm terrible. Like, I, it's, when I heard it, I'm like, is my phone on? <laughs> I asked Charlie, I said, whatever happened to that pastor? He said, Joel, he never built that building. I said, why not? He said, he never could pay the price to step out in faith to do it. I said, where is it at today? He said, Joel, I went over there the other day for a price estimate to just repave the existing parking lot because it had broken up. It was an asphalt parking lot. We gave him the estimate of $200,000 to change it. He said, Charlie, there can be no way. We don't even have $2,000. It's a shell of what it once was. 
Why? The price tag of leadership is change. And sometimes it's new buildings and new systems and new structures and new software. Sometimes it's new relationships. Sometimes it's new cities. Sometimes it's new locations. But it always has one thing. It's always something new. And I want to encourage you in this place that when you hear of something new, don't compare it to the past. Don't compare it to someone else. Don't compare it to the way it was. Don't be a museum keeper. Be a pioneer. And with that, if you will step out, I believe this whole place is going to step up. Amen. 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 Any questions? Any questions? I was going to ask you if you could, before we do some questions, we were talking about earlier about um, just a lot of people from our camp and company feel like when you get a bigger church like that, well, where does healing come in? Where does the gifts of the Spirit come in? Where does, and they're almost intimidated of it. Sure. And we were talking about how that is all pointing to something. Sure. Sure. So could you kind of share that, what you shared with me earlier? No, absolutely. What, what I wrestled with that very heavily, especially when our, our church started to grow. And we were wrestling with going to multiple services, and I heard all different types of opinions from all different types of people on how that will never work. If you do do that, then you'll lose this or lose that. And service structure, service times. And once again, that was some of the darkest times of my life, even though I was experiencing great professional success because of opinions from other people was causing a lot of personal stress because I felt like, well, even if I'm experiencing growth, I've got this whole group of people over here who's judging it and critiquing it and all of these types of things. And so I wrestled with that very heavily. And the Lord began to show me throughout Scripture what the ministry of the Holy Spirit, what it's always designed to do. I am, I am an unashamedly Spirit-filled man. I am an unashamedly Spirit-filled pastor. We have the gifts of the Spirit in our services. I believe very strongly in the ministry of angels, like I said, when I was preaching uh, or when I was studying for that series, I was listening to Pastor Jacobs teach on the subject. And all of those types of things uh, we strongly and adamantly believe in. In fact, if you come to our membership class, the first question we ask is, like I said in Acts chapter 19 and verse 1, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? That's the first question we ask. But with that, we have multiple services. We have four weekend services, one at, at Saturday and three on Sunday. In fact, right now we're planning for a fourth one on Sunday. I preach all of them live. There's no video feed. Uh, I want to see people's face because I believe when you see people's faces, an impartation that can be made. Uh, and with that, I drink a lot of Gatorade and caffeine and go home and sleep after the end of all that. Uh, but um, with that, Anyway, I wrestled very heavily with that. And one of the things that the Lord showed me in all of this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And when, when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit in John 14, 15, and 16, he talks about how the Holy Spirit has one main job. Now, he has other jobs, but he has one main job. And that's to take the world and show them their need for Jesus. And Jesus has one main job. It's to take the world and show them their need for the Father. But you can't get pointed to Jesus until first the Holy Spirit arrests your heart and points your heart towards Christ. Now, how many of you know that whenever you accepted Jesus, it's because the Holy Spirit's ministry was already in operation in your life, pointing you to Jesus. In fact, Jesus said that's the first thing the Holy Spirit will do. He will reprove the world of their sin. 
He will tell them their need for righteousness. He will tell them and convict them that in their heart there is eternal judgment and something in my life must change. He said that's the whole essence of the Holy Spirit is he's going to help people see their need for Jesus. In fact, even in Acts chapter 1, and this is something that a lot of our churches major on, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And we talk power, yes, power. That's what we want is some power. That's what our churches need is some power. But once again, what's all that power for? For you to be a witness. That that power, its end game, is always the salvation of souls. And this is why in the book of Acts, what do you see in like nobody's business when this thing is going? The church is exploding. And it's not in spite of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They didn't have churches and cathedrals and praise and worship teams and all of these things to invite people to. They didn't have business cards and Jesus Christ Evangelistic Association printed on vans. They didn't have billboards. They didn't have any of that. You know what they did have? A ton of persecution. They had families telling them that if you do this, we're going to kick you out of this family. They had bosses telling them, if you accept this, we're going to fire you. You know what they did? They did it anyway. And not only did they do it anyway, they reached thousands radically fast with the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit has one main job, and that is to point people to Jesus. Now, after you accept a relationship with Jesus, and Jesus takes you as a mediator between you and, and God and bridges that gap... When you get into that place, the Holy Spirit morphs into a teacher, a leader, a guide, a shower, and a revealer of things to come, an empowerment for you to fulfill the plan of God for your life. But guess what that is? That takes you so that your life can turn into a minister and moves you from just experiencing success because of that power into significance. And significance is when you create success for someone else. So the end game of every miracle, the end game of every leg growing out, the end game of every Holy Spirit service, the end game of any act of the Holy Spirit will never, ever make anyone who ever comes into your church not want Jesus. The end game of anything the Holy Spirit does, and Paul, Paul had to correct a whole church on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. He dealt with specific correction because he said when people walk in, they don't know what to think. But he said, if you do the Holy Spirit service right in a right, genuine way, he said, you'll see that the Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion, but the author of peace, as he is in all churches. He said that God's power is going to be so demonstrated by the Holy Spirit in your midst that the sinners who are there will not run out the door. The sinners that are there will fall down on their knees in truth and say, God is in you people. We want this Jesus. Who wouldn't want this Jesus? And so that liberated my heart to see, you know what? We can do prophecy, tongues and interpretation of tongues, the gifts of the Spirit. We can do it in such a way, if we do it the way Peter did it, when the Holy Spirit fell and cloven tongues of fire appeared and a sound shook the earth and everyone's coming out. If we get up like Peter did and explain what is going on and tell people this is what's going on here and get it where they understand it, they'll want to be a part of it. I was, I was telling him, I gave him the example of your coffee shop, actually. I said, how many coffee shops did we go to to get to yours? And when we got to your coffee shop, you know what we found there? A whole bunch of terminology that most coffee drinkers would not know. Chemex, you know, pour-overs, all these types of things. There's a whole bunch of, there, uh, of stuff that is on their menu that is far greater than any normal coffee shop that you would pass by. Their menu is actually better, more detailed, and all those things. But you know what their menu requires? I guarantee you they have to explain a lot of coffee to those people. 
They have to explain, well, this is what this is. But you know what? Once they get it, and if they're a true coffee drinker, man, and once they understand that menu, they will drive by those coffee shops every single time to get to that stuff. Why? It's better. It's better. It's better. It's better. And that's the difference with a spirit-filled church, man. It's the Holy Spirit's power that is in us. There's an enthusiasm. There's an energy. There's a life. There's a vitality in our worship, in our prayers, all of those types of things. It may need a little explanation. It may need like Peter stepping up and saying, okay, here's what we're doing here. We're not just singing, we're worshiping. Here's what happened here. It wasn't just, I know that the tongue or whatever, but here's the interpretation for that. And God's got a plan. It may require a little more explanation. But if we will take the time to do it, I guarantee you every visitor you bring in this place will do exactly what Paul said they would do in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and say, you know what? God is in you people. God is in you, and I want it because the Holy Spirit has a main job, and that's to bring people to Jesus. It doesn't matter who got healed if someone went to hell. It doesn't matter how great our services was if a community's dying and going to hell. The heart of Christ in the book of Acts is to minister to believers here to empower them to minister to their world. And there should be something. I told him, I gave him this example. I said, well, you told me about that coffee shop. Why? There's something about it that excites your soul. Right? Have you ever had something excite your soul? A movie? A meal? That you couldn't help but to post it on Instagram? You got to see this. You got to eat this. You got to drink this. You know what the early church had? that about their church you gotta get here you got to get here it'll cost me my family come on anyway it's worth it it's worth it there's a jesus who loves you in spite of yourself he forgives your sin and you don't have to walk away with shame and guilt and inferiority anymore and you can move mountains and have the plan of god revealed to you not leave with the frustration because you don't know what to do with your life he'll show you what it's awesome but it'll cost me my job. It's worth it. Come on, it cost me mine too. So passionate about it. Why? They believed in the product. Why? They tasted of it. And when they tasted of it, they saw this is good, like that Chemex coffee I had the other day, and said, you got to come get this stuff. Come get. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And that's what he does. It's precious. It's beautiful. So, yes, you can have a growing Spirit-filled church with thousands of people that are reaching a community that see, sees hundreds and hundreds of people born again, spirit-filled, delivered, set free. You may have to explain it. You may have to be more detailed. You may have to come into the service not assuming everyone knows what you know. You may have to use a term that everyone in the room can understand. You, you may have to, to, to say things and explain it in more of a simplified way so that everyone can get it. But if you do it right, you can have a dynamic, growing, vibrant church. Amen. Any other questions? Yes. Um, <clears throat> a Bible school student once asked Charles Spurgeon, what do you tribute your success to? And his answer was, my congregation prays for me. Yeah. Pastor Joel, what do you tribute your success to? I tell you what, it's hard to argue with that. It's hard to argue with that. 
for me, on a personal level, the Lord dealt with me to do exactly what King Uzziah did. In Second Chronicles chapter 26, it says, As long as King Uzziah sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. You think about that term, made him. That's never escaped me. Made him. If you don't do anything, you're going to do this. Made him. Because he was seeking the Lord. But when I look at my life, I would attribute a lot to that. When I look at my church, it's because the Book of Acts church had something in it that is so rare today, and it's the one thing Jesus prayed for, unity. You look at their prayers when buildings shook. They didn't pray long. They prayed together. And not just prayed together and that everyone was saying the same thing. It was that everyone had the same heart. There was one heart, one voice, one mind. There was a divine unity. And that whole body of believers was lifting up their voice and asking God to do the exact same thing. And whenever, you know, in a church of thousands, it's hard to to create that. But one thing we can create is on our staff, whenever there's a spirit of unity there and we're all praying together and praying for leadership and those types of things, we kick it up to a whole nother level. And whenever that is not there, I can always trace everything back to that one thing. Prayer and unity, for sure, for sure. Yes, I saw your hand. I was looking at your website, and you all have a place called Poindexter. Yeah. The Poindexter place, yep, yep. and that looks to be the hub of your outreach to the community, or at least a part of it. Yep. And I was wondering, in a practical sense, in your early days, how did you get outside the church walls? Yeah. And then a second point is, when you do have converts, how do you lead them into discipleship? Yeah, great question. Uh, for years, I knew um, our, our, my goal is to create a modern-day Book of Acts church. And one of the things that the Book of Acts church was was incredibly outward-focused. Like, everyone was not thinking about, I got to get to church and get an experience. It was, I got to get to church, get empowered, so I can give someone an experience. And so with that, I wanted to create that type of mindset in our church to get them very outward focused of, yes, we come here, we get the plan of God, we get fired up for God, we get doctrine. But all of that is leading to you going out and creating significance in someone else's life. And so we wanted to get people an opportunity to do that in the community. So we tried a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, we gave, we do donuts and knock on people's doors and go down to one, you know, anything we could do just to get out. And finally, we, we did a whole bunch of these things and we saw some things, but not just like a ton of fruit that everyone was just kind of eating it up. And I had an out, my outreach director was showing me video, our pictures of a um, outreach they had done that past weekend. And I saw a building, and we had just built our building. I saw a building out in the distance in this one particular photo. And when I saw it, the Lord told me to buy that building. And I thought, oh, no, we just built a building. At that time, we weren't debt-free. I'm like, the last thing I want is another building. Uh, and um, anyway, he came up to a couple of other photos, and at the forefront of that was the, the building came up to the forefront. He said, you know, if we ever did anything in the community, I think this building would be a great building to buy. I thought, oh, gosh, two witnesses. No, no, no. I went home, made a decision to do it, and came back. I told him, call and see how much they want for the building. Kid you not, two days later, had two checks come in from outside the church that paid for the building in its entirety. Amazing. 
So, but with that, uh, we set that up for that to just, uh, like for probably four years, we just did whatever we could in the community, just being good. If there were hungry people, we said, okay, we're going to feed them. If there are people who are in in need, we're just going to go out and visit them. But finally, that stuck, and that area kind of stuck. And now we have that building. We have a separate nonprofit there, which is the Life Poindexter. It takes in between ten to twelve thousand dollars a month, just it as in its own self through monthly partners within the church. That's not including what the church gives to it. And out of that, we run our local missions. Out of it, uh, we do um, 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 haircuts for homeless people. Uh, we give them. Um, cleaning products. We don't have to feed them because a ministry that does that is right next door. We have partnered with the local schools there. We've redone their computer labs, their libraries, bought every uh, classroom a smart board so that they can pipe in the world's greatest teachers right there in the rooms and make connections with kids in China and all those types of things. We bless the teachers big time because those are the toughest jobs in the whole community. So we feed them, buy them Christmas. We buy every kid a Christmas gift that's in the schools. Our congregation adopted this year right under 500 kids and bought them all Christmas. Um, uh, we do all of those types of things in the communities, but through our relationship with the schools, we have come to find out the parents in the community who are really trying their best to create a better life. We network with those people to give them job placement, take them through GED classes, do all of those types of things, teach them how to fill out job interviews, take them to job interviews, talk JATRAN, which is Jackson's public transport system, into creating a stop right there so that people can come to that place and then go... Uh, to their businesses and those types of things if they don't have vehicle transportation. So that's kind of our outreach locally is from there. In terms of discipleship, uh, with that many people, it's very hard to disciple people. Our only way to do it effectively is through our services and then also through small groups. We want everyone in our church to be able to go through a small group, and I could go through systems on how we organize small groups and those types of things so it doesn't get crazy. But with that, we do, we do small groups that way. And then we also want everyone to take a mission trip at least one time in their life. Take a mission trip. We, we, we're setting up a scholarship now to fund people who can't afford to take a mission trip to be able to take a mission trip. I believe one good mission trip is worth like 52 Sundays. Uh, so uh, with that, uh, we want everyone to take a mission trip. And then we want every one of our church, when they partner with our church, we ask them to partner with a local missionary or with a missionary overseas. And we show them the partners who were there. And we say, hey, as you're joining us, join one of them, even if it's just for $5 a month. So, But our main way of discipleship is through missions, outreach, volunteering some. Uh, and vo- the reason why volunteer works as a discipleship is it gets people to come to church. If you can get people to volunteer, you got a great chance of them sticking around. Uh, so with that, volunteering would be some discipleship, and the rest takes place through small groups. Any other questions? Yep. Um, so we spent a lot of time talking about uh, taking vision and running with it, but uh, what other things do you look for specifically in a leader? In a leader, empathy. Um, You know, I I think a leader very often has set a higher standard for himself or herself. That's what makes them the leader. You can't be the leader unless you have a higher standard. But with that, that can be negative in the sense of you start holding everyone to the same standard you hold yourself for. And that can lead to a lot of frustration because you're wondering, man, if they just did that in their life or if they just did this or why can't they just do that? It can actually work against the leader 
because you're expecting everyone to just get what you get. And why don't you see this needs to be fixed? And why don't you see we should be doing it this way? And all of those types of things. And they fail to realize that's what makes them the leader is they do see it. And if, if people saw it better than they saw it, they should be the leader. <laughs> so empathy comes in and puts, puts myself in the shoes of someone else and tries to see life through their eyes and helps coaches them yeah. to come up to the place where they are. And it takes empathy to do that. Uh, and so with that, I think that's one of the key characteristics of a leader uh, is empathy. I, I think character is the, the backbone for leadership. I think um, typically a lot of leaders are very charismatic by nature, uh, a lot of extroverts and things like that. They have a natural gift. For a leader, if they're called to be a leader, like I said, they naturally will display a glory in that area. And with that glory, the greater that glory is, it attracts people. The, the Bible says that people beheld Jesus' glory. And right after it says that, you see thousands of people coming to hear Jesus preach. That's what glory does. When it's in the life of someone, when you're seeing someone's strengths, it drives those people to us, which does something very negative oftentimes in what happened to Satan. Uh, with his beauty, with his glory, people beheld his glory, and it caused him to fall into pride. It made him not pay attention to his character, and it caused a great fall. So I think for a leader, vision, empathy, love, compassion for a fellow man, and then having a strong character uh, in their own life, people who can tell them no, people who can see when they're doing something wrong, people who can call them out on the carpet. I'll say this, every great, great leader I know has a spouse who can tell them no. That's one of the things you can use your spouse for is someone who knows you. And there's no one who knows your feet of clay like your spouse. And with that, when a spouse has the ability to come in your life and say, you know, you've been a little hard and you'd be able to see that, notice it, make an adjustment there, that's a mark of a great leader. Because when a spouse comes in and says, you know, what's, you're acting a little unjoyful. You know, you need some joy. And be able to accept it, not argue with it, that's the mark of a great leader. It's character. And so everyone needs that in life. I think that's one of the reasons God gave us a spouse is to help us with our clay yeah. and to help point us to Christ. But, but I think that's a, a huge point is, is character. So if I had to pick three things, character, vision, empathy, mm-hmm. I think those would be three good ones to start with for a leader. Thank you. Absolutely. Great question. Anyone else? How far do It's 822. Maybe go to 830. Yes. How about this brother? Isn't this a good brother over here? I'll tell you what, I've gotten some time with him. Could, could you share a little bit about what you spoke to Pastor Jordan and I about, like the Star of David and those two pyramids? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I was, I was telling them a book that I read years ago was by a rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lampin. He was talking about the Star of David. How many of you are familiar with the Star of David? Yeah, yeah. Uh, basically, the Star of David. I love the Star of David as a kid because I could not draw the regular star. But I could draw the Star of David. Does anyone know why you could draw the Star of David? Because all it is is two what? Exactly, triangles. You draw one the right way, one upside down, poof, you got the Star of David. So with that, I love the Star of David for that very reason. But in the Star of David, he talked about what that means to most Jewish people. He said the Star of David is made up of those two triangles. And one, you have a triangle shape like this that's kind of pointing down where it's on the tip. He said, what is that? That's a very unstable structure. You can move it to the right. You can move it to the left. You can tip it this way, tip it back. It's very, in a word, changeable. He said, then the other side of the Star of David is a, uh, an inverted, uh, or I guess, I don't know what the, I guess it would be inverted. 
where, where the, the triangle is like a, a pyramid, where it's, it's this way. And he said, that's the most stable structure in all the world. In fact, that's why the pyramids have stayed so long, because a rectangle can be tipped over, wind can blow it over. But you have a, 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 a structure that is so bottom heavy and so top light, it's not going to be moved. It's not going to be changed. And he said in his studies that in life, business, ministry, he didn't say ministry. I took it as ministry because that's kind of my vein. But in in life in general, there are things that should never, ever change. Never, like never. You don't touch these things. These things have been around for thousands of years. There are things that never change, and you always run into trouble when you try to change something that should never change. In business, there are some principles that are unchanging. In life, there are some principles that are unchanging. In in a relationship, there are some principles that are unchanging, right? There's some things that just, it was good for them 2,000 years ago. It's good for us today. Things like forgiveness. It was good for them to do. still good for us to do. It's unchangeable. You don't change it. You don't argue with it. It's just a law of life. It's there. You cannot try to change what God has designed to be unchangeable and expect to experience good success. Then he said that other pyramid represents things that have always changed. And there are things that will always change in this life. And he said with that, what so many people do is they try to not change the changeable. And he said that is just as dangerous as trying to change what is supposed to never change. And he said in any life, and especially, and this was a business book, so he's talking about businesses. He said there were businesses that have come up throughout history, Blockbuster being one. How many of you miss Blockbuster? I miss Blockbuster, man. Just walking down the aisle. You know, Netflix, all that kind of stuff is great. But, man, give me a Little Caesars pizza and a Blockbuster date night and just walk. Come on, somebody. Why aren't they here? Why are they out of business? You know, Walmart just had to close 290 stores. Why? What's changing? Internet, Amazon, it's eating them up. Why? It's changing. How you buy stuff, let me ask you, do you buy stuff the same way they bought it 2,000 years ago? No, it changed. What if I said, you know what, I still want to trade my ox cart for your silver. You know, these these types of things. It's always changed. That type of, it's always changed. So when would I run into trouble? If I try to keep something that will always change. So he said, in, in life, in business, you've got to understand the things that you should like never change and the, the things that you have to change, and you have to constantly change the changeable while constantly clinging to the unchangeable. And in our Bible, there are some things that should like never change no matter what church you're in, where you go to church, what nation that church is in, things like communion, things like the laying on of hands, things like doctrine, things like fellowship. Acts chapter 3 is filled with things that they said they continue steadfastly in. I love that. I love that. Because it's so clear. It tells us specifically things that the early church did with habit force. I just thought, once again, success leaves clues. God made this thing so easy. If I can get my church to do, continue steadfastly what the early church did, I can experience the same thing the early church experienced because God is not a respecter of persons. So with that, we cling to that. It's unchangeable. We do communion. We're going to have some fellowship. We're going to praise the Lord. We're going to see signs, wonders, and miracles. Why? It's never supposed to change. But then there's some other stuff that are people's sacred cows. 
that have always changed. Like they've always changed. How we listen to music, it's always changed. It's always, always, types of music, styles of music. It's all, it's literally, literally always changed. And whenever I run into trouble, it's either because I'm trying to change what should be unchangeable. And there's a lot of churches doing that today. And it may pay off in the short term, but trust me, not for the long term. I mean, even our nation is trying to change some things that should never change. <laughs> Marriage. But with this, right? Right? It's been that way for thousands. Right? I mean, right? Anyway. So, but with this, you have things that should never change. Never change. We can't negotiate with that. But then there's some other things that I can make just as an honest mistake as people make with that. Not releasing things that literally have changed since the time of man. And so as a leader, it's their job to see that. It's their job to see, no, we don't touch that. That's always been in the church. It should always be in the church. It's, it's not there because I like it. It's there because God invented it. But then there's some other things that say, you know what? God didn't really invent that. I kind of did. And I know I really love that. I love that painting. That painting. I've been in churches. We just love these columns. They can never. I'm like, ah, they could change. But, but with this, right? We love. Why do we like it? It makes us what? It makes us all comfortable. Exactly. It's what we're familiar with. So what do we do? We want to hold on to it. We like our Doritos and Lazy Boy. But with that, no, no, we got to give it up. So with that, it's our job to see and discern what those things are. Does that make sense? Yes. started your dad with your dad's vision that the ones that stayed with you and made the transitions is there anything that stood out to you about those people because you know they didn't just well I can't you know this was what what we did and that's what it did and, you know did any of them stand out to you what helped them move over into what you've done now that yeah. are still there that's a great question you know yeah I think so I, I, I think what, what they saw was exactly what I just said, is, is they saw it's changing. And when I took over, it, I took over at a time where church was, was changing, not just in terms of my church was changing, but church in general. It was, you know, from podcasts to, like we talked about, the, how people were giving to all of those types of things. And I think the people who, who stayed agreed with what Jesus said in John chapter 15, that if it's not producing fruit, we cut it off. Once, if It's like we said, one of the, the points that he was saying, if, if, if changes need to be made, we don't make excuses for not changing. We change. Uh, and so with that, I've always taken that, that John chapter 15 to heart. And I, whenever I communicated any type of reason we were changing, I'd ask him, is this producing fruit? And that's got to be the core test for everything. You judge a tree by the fruit it's producing. Uh, and with that understanding, well, if it's not, then, yeah, we can cut that off. And, and even saying, okay, well, this thing is producing fruit, but notice what Jesus said there in John chapter 15. He didn't say, well, it's producing fruit. Just keep it the way it is. 
Jesus said, no, even then, you've got to change it. You, you've got to come in and you've got to, to prune it. And, and there's some things that need to be pruned so that it can produce even more fruit. And so I think the people who stayed were more interested in it producing more fruit than they were in trying to keep and protect the fruit that was already there. Uh, and if they could catch a hold of that, then it helped them understand, see, participate, and support the leader and any type of change I may have been making. I don't know how old do you think you were when she said I saw you pulling a bunch 14. of cards over to him. Yeah, fourteen years old. Fourteen, and she, but she was obviously a person of prayer. Yeah, and she picked that up and told you that at fourteen she told you you she saw a card string card, of U-Hauls. U-Hauls, and you were hauling them over to the new location. Yeah, where which we hadn't bought today. yet. Yeah, and uh, see, you know, like uh, we have people praying. I think that's one of the key things. God will give you a new vision if you'll pray. You know, you can stay loyal to something. Yeah, that's good. And that's, that's honorable. But then if you're really praying, you'll pick up all this. I know Donna, uh, our secretary, is an intercessor, a prayer person all these years. Year, I don't know how many years ago she saw Jordan and she prayed for him standing before thousands. He was still in high school then, I think. And as a mom, I was even, you know, because his mom in high school, I was thinking, really? He's going to have to make some, he's gonna have to make some changes. See what I'm saying? But it seems like it's people that are in the church praying that pick up and see. And yeah. She told him that. And yeah. see, I'm thinking just like with you, someday that will come to pass yeah. in his life. And he'll realize that people were behind him, you know, and praying. And, and I, I don't know why I told that. But it just I, I was relating that, that you both had gotten... Uh, word from somebody in your church when you were still young yeah. in school yeah. about your future. So yeah. that shows that people in the church will be praying. They'll be on top of it. They'll right. they'll see the future. Yeah. Just like he sees No, because you, you have to discern those things by the Spirit. And Jesus ran into that even in his ministry as he would often tell them, you know, I'm going in this direction. And when he would tell them that, even his followers wouldn't understand, well, why are you doing that? You don't have to do it that way. Mm-hmm. You know, even Peter came to him and said, Lord, be it far from you to go and make that change, make that step. No, 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 no. And with that, uh, we see the motivation behind that was Satan trying to keep things the way they were. Uh, and right before then, Peter was completely yielded to the Spirit by saying, yes, you're the Messiah, you know, those types of things. So with that, I think you have to discern it by prayer uh, and, and, and by praying over the church and also not enter into prayer with your own affections yes. tied into it because, uh, you know, in, in Paul's life, he ran into that with the, the prophetesses. They came up and they picked up in their spirit things were going to be bad when he got there, but their affection was so pointed towards Paul that they interpreted that leading with, no, we shouldn't do that, when it was the exact opposite of Paul should have done it. But because his, their affections were so strong for Paul, their affections manipulated that leading. And so I think in prayer and all those types of things, not having affection so strong for something that we cannot see what the Holy Spirit is really saying in that area because it will distort that leading. But I think the more you pray with a pure heart, the more that is kind of clarified and the, the witness of the Spirit, like you said, it, it backs up because the same witness he's getting is other people are getting too. I tell you this, you guys got the right people. I can, I can just see it. I can see it on your faces. This is a beautiful thing. 
It's always first who, then what. The what doesn't matter if you don't have the who. I don't care who, who you are. The what doesn't matter if you don't have the who. never does. If you don't have the right who, you'll never get the right what done. You have the right who, you can do anything. You can do anything. You can get the who in unity. Even the wrong thing. Remember what Jesus said in the book of, in the book of Genesis, or God said in the book of Genesis? The people are one. They got this thing in their heart to do. And whatever they imagine to do, these guys are going to be able to do it. Why? The who got in unity. Now, it was over the wrong thing, but even God said, if I don't bring division to this thing and get them where they don't talk to each other anymore, if they keep on the same page, there is nothing that they have imagined to do that can be restrained from them. Isn't that powerful? So I think here you have the right who. And when you guys get in unity of, yes, we are going to take this community, we're going to take ground, be a regional church that makes an impact on the region and everyone seeing that and going after that, there's nothing that you can imagine to do that will be restrained from you. Just speak that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I tell you what, it's been an honor to be with you guys. Just have a, a strong affection for the leadership of this church, and it's just been so neat to be with Pastor Jacobs and Doctor Jacobs. It just reminds me of Doctor Dufresne. Just even the way he walked in the airport, I'm like, "That's Doctor Ed." This is <laughs> brought almost brought a tear to my eye, and, and um, just the fellowship I've been able to have with with them, and then your pastors. It's been delighted to see their heart and their their vision, and getting to know some of the, the church members here. You guys are just your precious people. And it's an, an honor to serve you in, in any capacity. And I pray and look forward to seeing you again sometime. Amen. 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 It's been an honor. God bless you guys. Yeah, I have something I want to share. Where's the mic, Alan? Do you have anything, Jordan, else to, you want me to dismiss after I share? I just wanted to remind everybody that 13 months ago, I did a meeting in this church in December. And it was called Let's Pioneer again because I saw many of the things starting to change. And, and of course, I didn't know it all. You know, I'm going through changes, too. And all of us are. But I tried to get over to you that you're going to be changing one way or the other. And let's keep a pioneering spirit about us. And uh, you probably don't know this, Joel, but we have a, a marquee, a PowerPoint deal that's up. We've had since that meeting in December 2014, where I talked for three nights, let's pioneer again to keep people moving forward. And I use the illustration, been in church a long time, you get set in your ways, and if you don't think right, you don't stay with it, you don't stay with your pastor, you don't stay with your mate, you don't stay with your job, you don't stay with anything. Unless you're thinking, let's pioneer again, you've got to have that motivation. And I'm just, I'm not saying that to toot my horn, I'm saying to say this, in essence, the word says, in the mouth, listen to me, in the mouth of two or more witnesses, let everything be established. Now, see, Pastor Joe, he don't know anything about this other than what I told him on the phone, which was very brief, because I know he's a busy man. I just said, I've given my church to my, my son. Of course, we knew each other somewhat, Joel, Pastor Joel and I, and I'd like you to come. My son and I both agreed that you should come and spend a day or two with us, if you can, and share with us about transition. So I'm saying that just to encourage you, Pastor, because we picked up on that a year or so back. Now, I don't know how many of these people remember that or have been thinking like that. Or, and there's a lot of other people in the church, some more attuned to what I'm saying or listen better, and some don't. But I think this is our core. So thank God you came and said those things. 
And I can tell there's a whole lot more in you, and I, wasn't, uh, I, w I didn't come to the afternoon session today, but I heard it was very enlightening for Sean and Jordan. We love you. We appreciate you. Let's stretch our hands out towards Pastor Joel right here. Father, we just thank you for this man of God that's just, uh, just so full of you and so full of the Word, and we're so thankful and grateful that he's come to minister to us, how our hearts are full and how there's more confidence in us even through his teaching about what we're not attempting to do but what we're doing. And we thank you for a smooth transition because he came. We thank you he's added a lot to us in a significant way. And we just continue to bless him and his family and his ministry and his marriage, his children, his health. And we thank you for all that we've learned from him in these past two days. Blessing be upon him in a mighty way, Father. And we're sure we'll see him again in due, due season. <laughs> and we just thank you for him. Thank you for all these leaders who are here tonight. May all of us receive what was spoken and, and let the Spirit of God help us digest this and process this and continue to bring added light to it in the name of Jesus. Father, we pray for a safe trip home for everybody, that the angels of God go with us to keep us safe from all injury, harm, or destruction. We thank you for these precious people that made an effort to come tonight, and we bless them, and thank you for their support, not only for Jordan and Lauren, but for me and Diana and for our whole church leadership. Thank you so much, Father, for what you're doing in this church. We just thank you. It's going to be a smooth transition. We're not going to decrease. We're going to increase, and we thank you that Jordan has a big vision, and I'm grateful to have a son that has that kind of vision for this church of which I'm a part and I, I am in agreement and I lend my faith to him and with him in the vision that he has in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you.